0: Well, we're not starting another series tonight, just uh, felt like God led me back to a, a message I'd preached uh, in 2013 um, uh, to change a few things in, but but I just had been uh, we're looking through some older messages and, and came across something I felt like he led tonight, and uh, you know there's sometimes I uh, may preach on a topic that the temptation from someone in the congregation is feel like, oh, there must be... Uh, an issue with that somewhere in the church so that's why pastors preach about it well that's not the case sometimes uh, like the message uh, that that I preached before about when we're in the valley you know when you're on the mountaintop and everything's going good it's the best time to hear from the Lord not wait till you're in trouble because you hear from the Lord when you have clarity then when you're in the valley and the fog's thick and you can't see those words that what you know was clear from the Lord carry you to the next mountaintop So many times messages I bring is not because we're having an issue with that at the time. It's because maybe right now things are going good from all I know. Uh, At least nobody's told me anything real negative. And so going good. So a good time to get some clarity from the Lord on something that may carry us through a dark place. Before I get into that, I heard about a pastor who um, went to visit family one day in his church. He knocked or one of the ladies in his church went to knock on the door and And no one answered it, so he knocked again and again, but still no answer. So uh, just kind of being a little quirky that day and feeling funny, he thought he he heard someone, but they wouldn't answer the door. So he finally slipped a note under the door, and it was Revelations 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Four days later, he received a note in the mail, and it was Genesis 3.10. I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. <laughs> you know, it's, it's healthy to have a good sense of humor. Um, I don't know if I have a good sense of humor. I try at humor. But uh, after the third pastor of this church, I don't think we've had one yet. That didn't, the first one had the best sense of humor, i tell you the truth. But, um, well, anyway. Well, there's two men that lived in a village. They got into a terrible dispute, and um, they decided to talk to the town sage. And so the first man went into the sage's home and told his version of what happened. And when he finished, the sage said, you're absolutely right. Well, he went on, and the next man that had been uh, disputing with him came in and went and told him his side of the story. And the sage, town sage said, you're absolutely right. Well, after he left, uh, the sage's wife came out and said, that's really awful. You both those men told you heartfelt sides of their story and you both told them um, they were absolutely right. They can't both be absolutely right. And he turned to his wife and said, honey, you're absolutely right. Some people really want to avoid conflict. And that's just the way it is. Now, I, my wife, I try not to mention her in anything when she's not in here, but anybody, this is not any secretive, my wife does not like conflict. Um, I don't like it, but I don't try to avoid it if it's unavoidable. Sh- she will go to great lengths to avoid conflict. Um, for instance, if she gets a phone call and she doesn't recognize the number, she doesn't answer it. She lets it go to voicemail. Now, some of you are like, well, that's wisdom to me. She says, I don't want to get a telemarketer. I'm afraid of getting someone I don't want to talk to. I'm like, well, that's easy. You just hang up. Or you tell them I'm not interested. Or I don't want to talk to you. I mean, honesty is best policy. Just deal with it, right? Well, she's, she's not that way. She would rather just avoid it, let it go to voicemail, and then play like she didn't hear it ring. So some people don't like conflict. Uh, most people in the right mind don't go looking for it. And I should know because I'm one of those groups. I don't go looking for it. But conflict is a fact of life. In fact, many have made the point that conflict, even within the church, is a sign of life. I've told many people come through this door. It's not a great epiphany that I learned. And after five short years of pastoring, all of a sudden I know more than any other pastor. But I could tell you that we've made great mistakes in church history when we told people, oh, come to our church. Our church is not like that other one. Because you can't guarantee the actions of other people in the very next minute. Someone can flat lose their mind one Sunday and drive everybody off. So we shouldn't make promises we can't keep. Because church is a place like if you go to sit on a counselor's couch and they start prodding and picking at stuff in your past you don't want to deal with, you're probably going to get angry and aggravated, maybe rude with them. And so when you come in, the Holy Spirit starts pricking and prodding at your heart. And trying to pull stuff out of you that you're not ready to let go of, you're probably gonna get a bad attitude. And it's gonna to manifest towards some innocent bystander, right? Sister so-and-so. We can't believe that she stitched that pillow and leaves it in her spot every time. What's wrong with her, right? So we we pick on whatever is right in front of us. So there's evidence of the fact that people are not um they're they're they rarely want to go after conflict there are some who maybe enjoy it they're just bent that way and I don't understand them but they just like conflict but uh, avoiding confrontation is often a recipe for even greater conflict and pain and what I mean by that is you're not looking for an argument but when you run from conflict every time you could be looking for even greater conflict and pain the important question is how do we manage conflict appropriately Within the fellowship of the church. When you get bent in a certain way. What's the appropriate way to handle it? I can tell you that I can sense sometimes. When something's not right. There's somebody upset. Sometimes I know that who that person is. But they're not saying anything. And I'm just trying my best to open the door of communication. Trying to figure out what it is. Because we just want to get on the table. And, and, and they put it off and put it off. till all of a sudden you get that right before service. Pastor if you got time after service. I really need to talk to you. Great, now i got to go preach, wondering what is it that they want to talk to me about, right? I'm human, and that, that gets to you. So, so what's the right way for us to handle conflict? Well, the passage we want to read this evening from Galatians is, is the record of one of the best-known conflicts in the early church, and in it I see a model of how we should really deal with controversy among believers. And first, I'd like us to consider the source of the conflict— and then we'll look at the solution to the conflict. It's good to see what the source is first. So let's first look at the source. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. When you got it, say got it. When you, don't, when you need more time, say hold on. All right. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Ready, set, go. Okay, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him publicly, speaking strongly against what he was doing, for it was very wrong. Then, he fir- when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who don't bother with circumcision. But afterward, when some Jewish friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of what these legalists would say. Then the other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was influenced to join, in, join them in their hypocrisy. Now let me remind you of the significance of Barnabas, right? The encourager. We had another sermon on that. When, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the good news, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you trying to make these Gentiles obey the Jewish laws you abandoned? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. And yet we Jewish Christians know that we became right with God, not by doing what the law commands, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be accepted by God, Because of our faith in Christ and not because we have obeyed the law for no one will ever be saved by obeying the law. Verse 17. But what if I seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then find out that we are we are still sinners? Has Christ led us into sin? Of course not. Rather, I make myself guilty if I rebuild the old system I already tore down for when For when I tried to keep the law, I realized I could never earn God's approval. So I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I live my life in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not one of those who treats the grace of God as meaningless. For if I could be saved by keeping the law, then there was no need for Christ to die. You see, I didn't have this in my notes um, when I prepared this, but yesterday had an awesome uh, opportunity, had a conversation with someone going through some really difficult things in their life, and uh, we got on the, the topic of the rich, rich young ruler. And I come and I said, there's few people in the Bible that amaze me more than any others. And the rich young ruler is one of them. And people would maybe say, why? Why? That's the guy that walked off in shame, right? What amazes me is the, the, the dialogue there because he's point blank asked, do you obey the law, all of it? Do all? And he says, I have obeyed it all since I was a child and he is not challenged on that. Now the whole reason for Jesus coming in the new covenant was because people couldn't what? Obey all the law. It was just like impossible, right? Here you've got this guy, listen to this. He's got power, right? He's got riches and he's got youth. He's got all this. We know the Bible says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this guy with power and all that, all of that was able to obey the law. This is an incredible young ruler. Now this isn't, I'm not going to go rabbit trail very long, but this isn't my notes. But here's the amazing thing about this. But then he's asked, sell all everything you have and follow me. And he walks away sad. You see, if you really quit and ponder, stop for a minute and ponder that, if you spend a day to think about that and reflect in your own life, how difficult it is to follow the law, this man can. But when he's asked to give up all of his possessions, he can't. So, what this should prove to us is you can have all your ducks in a row as a Christian, as far as going to church, reading your word, evangelizing, doing all that, and you can still have the same heart that would walk away from Christ when you're pressed. You see, that was a form of conflict. The conflict was he's challenged to get rid of what he truly had in his heart. Somehow he was able to obey all those rules and hold to them all that time with all the power and all the temptations. Yet he couldn't get rid of the wealth. So the source of the conflict, fear. Fear. Verse 12 said when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who don't bother with circumcision. But afterward, when some Jewish friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of what these legalists would say. See, some of you might have recently come out of a lifestyle that where you have friends that you wouldn't really want pastor to go hang out with you guys because the way they talk and act right now isn't what's in your heart but yet they haven't really come to the realization and fully realized and reconciled the fact that you've changed something different in your heart, and it's not going to change them right away, and so their behavior isn't changed because of you. And somehow in our mind we get that, oh, now that I'm a Christian, pastors should only see, or people, believers should only see me around those who act like them. But that's the conflict here. Peter's doing one thing in front of one group, Right? the religious people, right? He wanted to appease them, and we don't do what the Gentiles do, but when they're away, he did. And so we get this messed up sense, but yet we know Jesus himself would be with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all that. He would go with them. He wouldn't do what they did. He would go to minister to them. So you know what's really amazing about what happens here between Paul and Peter, that it's Peter. Peter, who was the first of the apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. This would be like someone who is called to be uh, a missionary to Russia. I'm just going to pick on Russia because we don't talk about Russia a lot. So called to, to be with people in Russia. But they go to some, some place where people don't like Russians, right? And they'll sit there and listen to them talk horrible about the Russians and all that. Oh, yeah, and they. They're with them, but then they go over here to the Russians and be like, oh, I love you so much. My calling is to you. You see, that's what Peter, Peter is called to the Gentiles. And Peter, who had a special revelation from God in a dream, making it clear to him that God had chosen to pour his grace out upon the Gentiles, making them clean by the blood of Christ. Peter, who stood before the council at Jerusalem and defended the baptism of the Gentiles. This is the problem. This is being two-faced. How could Peter, of all people, have been snared and caused a conflict over an issue that should have been long settled for him? It's really is very calling. There's a principle here that all of us would do well to heed. It's often at the places in our lives that we consider strengths that the enemy will trip us up over, and we become complacent. The scripture says, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. So the very things sometimes we think are strengths are weaknesses. You may think it's a strength that you don't drink any alcohol. But you'll sneer and jeer at those who are struggling with it. Or maybe you've conquered drugs in your life and someone else is struggling and say, well, I just know how that is, boy, until they want the help, you know, they just aren't going to. Well, there's maybe some truth to that, but it may be in the attitude of the heart that we have that's wrong that when we're around the people that don't struggle with it, we put ourselves up there with them, right? Because, you know, I overcame that. I overcame that. Not Christ, by the grace of God, uh, by the power of God, did he, uh, did he pull that from me, and it's only by his grace am I now delivered. But all of a sudden, somehow, we get down the road, and we're like Peter over here with the Jews saying, oh, you know, thank goodness that I am not like that anymore. You see what I'm saying? That's, that's the conflict. That's the problem. When we Before we know it, we, we slip into this place where we change our behavior. We change our attitude depending on the people we're around. So Paul tells us that fear was the key to Peter's downfall. Fear of what? Of being thought less of? Of losing influence? I don't know for sure, but clearly not fear of God, but fear of men. And so... In conflict, even today, this fear of what others might think is so often at the heart of conflict. It's motivating the behaviors and the hurtful words that fuel our controversies. And what is the behavior at the source of the conflict? Hypocrisy. Verse 13, Then the other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was influenced to join in their hypocrisy. I can tell you this is one of the, this grips my heart because even as a pastor, I want so bad to be a good good shepherd. I do. And it's not about being at a job. And it's not just about pleasing Christ. It's, it's that after me kicking and screaming, coming into this role, God's actually created a love for it. And it can be a love-hate relationship, but mostly love. And so, you know, as God's pulling me along and he's creating that passion for me, I, if I get pulled into something that I know is not right, Then it does more than just make me think. Oh, well, I got to try again tomorrow. It starts to break my heart that I I'm not past that yet. You know, if someone's talking negatively about another brother or sister, and I'm there, and before I know it, I'm in the conversation. I'm like, and maybe I'm trying trying to throw a positive spin on it, but you know, maybe I need to man up like Peter should have and and just stand up and walk back and say, you know what, I can't be in a conversation like this. That's a brother and sister in Christ. If, if there's a problem with them, we need to go to them. But I tell you, in the church, that's one of the most difficult, isn't it? We all like to discuss each other, right? We all like to, we like to talk about each other's woes and, and what, what's frustrating about others. But uh, Francis uh, Finnellan, uh, he was a, a court preacher for, the King, for King Louis the 8th, uh, the I'm sorry, the 7th, the 4th, the Woo. Sorry, bifocals. I'm t- <laughs> I, never tried to re- I haven't tried to read Roman noodles since I uh, got these. All right. <laughs> for King Louis, let's try this again. For King Louis, the 14th of France, in the 17th century, one Sunday when the king and his attendants arrived at the chapel for the regular service, no one else was there but the preacher. King Louis demanded, what does this mean? And Finland replied, I had published that you would not come to church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. It was at that time that the king realized it was not God that they feared and obeyed, but him. See, Peter was not pretending to serve God for the sake of others, but he was pretending that he didn't associate with the non-law-keeping Gentiles when the law observant Jews came to visit, imagine the impact of his behavior on these believers. Yesterday they were okay company, but apparently now that the real Christians, the Jewish Christians, were there, they're not worthy. Now I don't want to step on any toes here, but I will tell you that growing up in the church, a pastor's son, I've had discussions about this. There, there are, there will never be more than two years spread before someone in a church will find some kind of teaching that they feel like is the newest, greatest thing and that their church needs to get on board with it and they'll start pushing it to the pastor. And it can come in a lot of forms. It can be something that seems pretty innocent. It, it could be a focus on, on certain things in the Bible. Uh, many times it could be on, on Jewish beliefs. We need to start doing it like the real true Jewish believers did. And we need to celebrate these festivals. We need to do these things. When you do these things and and somehow it's almost like there's a spirit of this original Jewish belief that back then still carries a day where people all of a sudden think it will raise me to another level with God if I'll just perform these things. If I celebrate the feast of trumpets, if I do this, if I do that, it'll make me better prepared. And so all of a sudden we want, to, we, want to, we want to do these things. Now, there's nothing wrong. In fact, we have some close friends right now that are, that are looking into um, Messianic Judaism and, and wanting to be involved with that. And there's nothing wrong with them wanting to do that and God leading them to that if that's where that, they feel God's leading them. So I don't want to confuse that with that I think it's wrong for us to do any observance of any Jewish holidays. I'm just saying that that we have to be careful that we don't try to separate ourselves from other believers, other Christ followers, and place ourselves in a place like, oh, they are not, they are not following the same path that I am. So I, I can't eat with them. But then when, when their other friends are away, it's different. So it's hypocrisy. What generally makes this hypocrisy is that the fact that peter was clearly acting in a contrary way to the belief that he held it wasn't that he was siding theologically with the judaizers he was simply he simply didn't want them to think less of him he was just one to save face with them so hypocrisy it's hurtful to people it discredits the cause of christ i tell you before we even started the hispanic church here we we had a guy one time that i was ministering to and came to service and and made a very negative con I made some comment in my sermon about some of my Hispanic friends in the past who could outwork me. And he made a very negative comment in the pew that was heard by my sister in law who is Hispanic. (laughs) And he didn't show back up and I'm not sure why. But I was ready to have a talk. Because you cannot ostracize a group of believers in the church and say that you're trying to be Christ-like. You can't set yourself apart from them and, and, and put yourself in a greater place in any way or capacity. Even if they are having struggles in sin and trying to turn from that and in a process of being discipled, you still are no greater than them. We're all just beggars trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. There's one final thing in the mix of the source of the conflict, it's legalism. And and this one touches a very sensitive spot of the the history, the very foundation of New Song. Some of you may not know, but Pastor Jim's vision for this church, one of the very foundational reasons this church was built, was not to be better than any other church here in the area, uh, more so to partner with, but that our culture, our environment would be one that fights hard against religious, religiousism. The, the legalism, the, the, you know, you can't wear a hat backwards in church, you know. You can't do this. those things that aren't biblical. There's, there's no great founding on it. It's just the way someone did church when they're growing up in their culture. And somehow they put it canonized in between Genesis and Revelation, and they couldn't give you the scripture and verse. It's just the way they were brought up and taught, and so they're going to stick to it, even if they have to offend a new believer or a newcomer to stand their ground and get their way. And we, we have to actually fight that here. I've I, I paid a big price before fighting that very thing to the point it made me physically ill. But I, I will fight it and defend it because it's not about me. That's about what God's wanting to do through New Song. And you know, we didn't start out with any ministry to those that have been in jail or have had, had struggles in their life. God started sending them here. But now I can see five years later the path in which he took us to make it a place where they could come and feel welcome. There's a few that had to leave. There was a conflict that had to happen. And God had called me to be the shepherd, and the brunt of it needed to fall on me. And so so you've got to understand that what Peter's dealing with here, he is placed in a shepherd-like role. And listen, we as shepherds, we all fail at times. And this is sadly one of his failures here, being spread out for all of us to see for all of eternity, Canonized in Scripture that, that Peter... At a moment, he worried about saving face with what he thought were the higher up, higher end Christians. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the good news, I said to Peter in front of all the others. Now, this is interesting. I don't know if he had a conversation with Peter before and then took somebody with him. You know, and then finally, this is the outing to the congregation. Or if there's some loophole here and this is okay, but he just basically lets everybody know, um, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are giving are living like a Gentile, here's basically saying, like I know you want them to think you're living one way, but I'm just going to tell them. Why are you trying to make these Gentiles obey the Jewish laws you abandoned?" So the specific issue of controversy here was legalism, the belief that being truly Christian requires adherence to an external set of standards. And I'd like to tell you that after Peter and Paul got this issue straightened out between them, it ceased to be a problem, but unfortunately that's not the case. One young man asked one time, I am earnestly, I I am in earnest... uh, seeking about uh, forsaking the world and following christ but i'm puzzled about worldly things what is it i must forsake and so uh, a good religious person told him well colored clothes for one thing get rid of anything that's not white and uh stop sleeping on soft pillows and and sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread and and uh You cannot, if you're sincere about being Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is a lie against him who created us to attempt to improve his work. You you see, if you go down the slippery slope of making your preferences on someone's physical appearance or certain cultural things or um, their race or whatever it is, it's a slippery slope, and then it gets ridiculous. I mean, that sounded ridiculous. And I'm sure to Jesus, some of the things we put on being a Christian and what it should be to be a Christian, he thinks is ridiculous. We have to be careful that we don't, don't get so high and mighty that we can't be taught something and think maybe we're putting things on Christianity that don't belong. It's the an answer that many, since they're getting from the church, something like that, something so ridiculous like that. Maybe not those exact things I mentioned, but a list of requirements just as ridiculous. Elizabeth Elliott, a writer, asked this question. Is it possible that the rules that have been adopted by many 20th century Christians will sound as absurd to the earnest followers of Christ a few years hence? I think this is a funny thought. A suit and a tie and shiny shoes or just dress shoes. Was there a time when that was too racy, too modern? that a Christian wouldn't be seen wearing such flashy stuff, right? I mean, you think about it. A lot of things that we've adopted adopted as you go to a minister's convention and what would you be expected to probably be wearing? A suit and tie, right? I mean, oh, there's a slouchy guy. His church must be in decline, you know? But we get these things in our mind, right? There's certain dress and, and I get it. We, we know that there are certain expectations. If you have a job in some businesses, suit and ties required, those type of things. But what I'm saying is, in Christianity, is it possible, just like Elizabeth Elliott said, is it possible that sometime down the road or before us, maybe some of the things we're doing now at one time was absurd? And we who are fighting against our parents' thoughts, right, on what is absurd and what's not, we will probably be fighting our children over something that they think is observed absurd or we don't the the idea is that we have to be careful that we don't put on christianity anything that is not scriptural Richard Foster one of the foremost Christian authors on the topic of spiritual disciplines asked us to consider the story of Hans the Taylor now Hans the Taylor uh, because of his reputation he was an influential entrepreneur in visiting the city, he came uh, to pick up his suit that had been custom-made for him. One sleeve was twisted one way and the other another way, and a shoulder bulged out and, and one caved in. And he pulled, the, uh, pulled in and managed to make his body fit in it. And as he returned home on the bus, another passenger noticed his odd appearance and asked if Hans had the suit made at the tailor. And receiving an affirmative reply, the man remarked, amazing. I knew that Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make the uh, the suit fit so perfectly on someone as deformed as you. And sometimes we try so hard to push and prod and fit someone in that Christian suit of how they should look that we've now made them look deformed. They weren't when they started, but now they do. We try to fit them in that box of what we thought Christians should have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But we have to be careful that we're not making efforts to push them into some deformed suit and make them look like uh, they've been twisted and mangled. Sometimes it's twisted legalistic standards that we can put on others, which do not come from the heart of God. My dad has told me before, if you can't preach a gospel in every part of every nation, in every part of the world, world, it's not the gospel. In other words, if you've got a prosperity doctrine and you can't go preach it in the poorest village in Africa, then it's probably not the gospel. Because the same gospel should be able to apply to them that applies here. And so if, if your idea of how Christians should dress, and all that, I'm not talking about modesty, now, there's some tribes in Africa that their idea of monastery, I'm sure, is different than ours. And they get away with a lot less. But we're not talking about monastery. We're talking about just our sense of how people should dress and, and be. So if we can't preach it to an African tribe and say that's truly the gospel, then we shouldn't be preaching it here. And we shouldn't be trying to force people into some twisted suit of religion But from the desire of men for conformity and to fulfill a checklist they use to measure the effectiveness of our religion come these sort of things. This over the years has been the source of virtually every conflict, great and small, in churches all over the world. I I can tell you that once in a while I see articles about some great church splitting or or breaking off or a denomination having troubles. And a lot of times when you read into what the issue was at hand, the base issue... It was not of anything scriptural. It's not anything over scripture. It's over preferences. And this is not to say that people's lives shouldn't be changed by the gospel. And you know, hear me clearly on this. I, I remember not long ago when I picked up the last guy on that stretch of road that we talked about. I picked up three guys in that same spot, and, and they all came to know Christ. And, and especially that last one, the countenance on his face literally changed when he prayed and accepted the Lord. Now, it's been a while since I've seen that kind of change where the person's face looked drawn, it, it looked sad, and when, when Christ came in, there's a twinkle in their eye. You know, so I'm not talking about uh, giving away change. that When people become uh, saved, that, that they may not change the way they dress. They may change uh, their behaviors, of course, and some other things. But it's when we try to project things on them that are simply our preferences. It's simply to say that we do not hold the measuring rod. Only God does. Sometimes that change in others, when it, when it comes and the Lord has done it, looks perfect on them. Other times it may seem slow and never quite far enough. I don't know why. Sometimes I've prayed with guys to be delivered from some addiction, and some may be delivered like that, and others it's a long process, and maybe they need Christian treatment or whatever. I don't understand God's ways in that. But we can't be the ones to decide how quick that process should be. And our demand that others satisfy us is often the source of conflict. And it's a destructive and non-constructive way because it's always when, when this, this trap we get into, um, we need to be defenders of the truth and justice and the Christian way. And when in reality we're, we're doing no better than those who demand that any real Christian should only bathe in cold water. I mean, you go down the list. It was circumcision back then, Right? And you could fit anything in there, and when you go down that slippery slope, all of a sudden you can be requiring a Christian something totally ridiculous. So these sources are fear and hypocrisy, legalism. Those are the ones that destroy, destroy the welcoming church. So what's the solution to conflict? We'll go full circle back to the beginning. What's the solution? Confrontation. The very thing that some of us run from at any great cost because verse 11 says but when Peter came to Antioch I had to oppose him publicly speaking strongly against what he was doing for it was very wrong in other words there's sometimes you don't have time to have that little conversation on the side because the damage they're doing might be might be so great you need to take care of it right then I've heard stories of pastors being in services where they open it up for testimonies or prayer requests and you can get some crazy things. And and we were talking about this uh, the other day at my dad's place. It's like, you know, sometimes people want the pastor to just know what to say right then. Someone says <laughs> something really off the wall. It's not that easy. But there's times that if you don't say something, everybody leaves there thinking the pastor approves of what was just said. And so in this case, it was a situation where something had to be said right there. Don Shula, coach of the Miami Dolphins, was talking to a reporter about a player uh, a player's mistake in practice and he said we never let an error go unchallenged because uncorrected errors multiply then the reporter said isn't there benefit in overlooking one small flaw Shula said what is a small flaw and even though we do uh, God gives grace uh, for the failures we make there's times we need to realize that that what we hold uh, the challenge to spread the gospel and do it with truth and and, and do it in, in, in a way that Christ would have us do it, uh, there's not room for error when you're spreading the gospel. You, you can't be preaching a different gospel. What is a small flaw? Well, we can go overboard too. I see that in being a dad with my children. There's times when when I I jump on them too hard about small things, and there's times when I've let small things go and I shouldn't have, and those errors multiplied. But uncorrected errors do multiply. You've got to face them someday. You can't run from conflict every day of your life. Many of us fear confrontation, but without without confrontation, sometimes wounds fester. Uh, Without confrontation, sometimes friendships break, churches split, families split. When there's genuine genuine problems in the body we have a responsibility to begin the process of healing by confronting the issue. I can tell you if I have to ever have a meeting in my office with someone and it's not a positive thing and I'm the one calling the meeting. There's probably no sleep the night before for me my guts and knots and I have prayed until I can't pray almost anymore until I'm out of out of thoughts and breath and everything I've got to pray. But my only caution here, and it's a big one, is be sure that you're on the right side of the issue. I know we think we're all right, but I've had many times where people have said, you know what, I prayed about this, and I realized I was wrong. And they changed their stance. And if God convinces them, if the Holy Spirit convinces them they're wrong, that issue is probably dead from then on. You may win an argument, and it may come back several times. But if you pray and go to the Lord, and he convinces you, the issue is done. So make sure you prayed and searched the scriptures and make sure it's not an issue that is simply a matter of personal preference. Make sure you're not on, one, on the arguing side of the law against grace. And where there are issues that aren't really sin that are causing a problem for you, pray and ask God to change your heart or to show you a loving way to be a good teacher, and example of a brother and sister in Christ. In all cases, confrontation must be done with truth. Verses 15 and 16. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. And yet we Jewish Christians know that we became right with God, not by doing what the law commands, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. See, Paul deals with the problem by reminding Peter of the truth he already knows. Before you jump into confrontation, study and know the truth. Study and and, and understand the truth and not just to construct a good argument for Scripture. Some of the ways things go wrong in churches when someone gets in their mind that the pastor or staff or someone or so-and-so across the aisle is wrong and they can't take a breath and stop long enough before they escalate it, to even give God a chance to say, whoa, buddy, you're making a mountain out of a molehill or you're pushing the wrong agenda. So we need to be careful. Before you jump into confrontation, study and know the truth. Scripture is as sharp as a a two-edged sword, it says, but some who use the knife are, are surgeons and others are butchers. And that's the thing I pray, God, to help me and there's been times I've been in that confrontation and the Holy Spirit steps in and me and my wife walk out of a conversation and say, wow, that was the Holy Spirit because I had no idea how that got in my head. I mean, I walked into it just like, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. No, nothing on the agenda. And, and, and God's wisdom steps in and he speaks through you like a mouthpiece and brings healing or brings restoration to a situation or, or brings a breakup that needs to happen for the better of the whole church. There are people who are not here anymore, and God ordained it because they were set on causing division. Every church is going to have those. You may not know about it what it happens. You may just wonder, I wonder where that person went. And not everybody leaves. It's a bad thing, you know. Not everybody leaves that left on a bad note. Some may just say, God's leading me here. Or some, you'll never know because they don't tell anybody, including the pastor, and they're gone. But there are some times someone's not there, and you're wondering what happened to them. And I may know, and it might be that we had to pray them out. Because the Holy Spirit revealed that they were just going to cause problems. I know of a, a story of a man who had accomplished great things as far as in worship ministry, had done a lot of great, great things through wor- worship and in big venues, and uh, and basically in his heart he felt like he wanted to go and help smaller churches, but his mode of operation was to go for three or four months, slip in late, leave early, and observe for a few months, and then go and offer all his critiques to the pastor, for him to change the things that he saw. Now, how do you think that goes over with a pastor? Well, I'll tell you my response. Hey, brother, if you took the time to get to know a few people in this church, get to know their struggles, walk life with them, you wouldn't be so critical. They may not be as spiritual as you want them to be in your mind, but you have no idea what they're walking through. And until you're willing to get in and be a part of the body of Christ instead of an observer looking through a looking glass with your criticism, then we don't have a conversation here. So be very careful about coming with a critical spirit and thinking that you're going to somehow confront a body of believers on something you've observed when you haven't taken the time to walk life with them and get to know anybody you can sit in a pew for as long as you want but if you can't remember half a dozen names sitting in the other pews you have no right to speak on what's going on in that church you can make all your observations from the 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 few messages a week or what you think of the pastor or what you see of him or you know he's not in the office enough he's in the office too much he's he's not going to the hospital enough he's there too much or whatever you can make all those observations you want but if you don't get out of your seat and you don't be a proponent of the positive change in the church, not by just telling people what's wrong with them, but walking life with them, then you don't have a right to speak. It's kind of along the same idea of, hey, if you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain about who's leading, right? When we confront an error with truth, we must do it according to the scriptural admonition. I can't even speak. You know what I'm saying, to speak the truth in love. So maybe it's not just the bifocals, huh? So if we if we do this, we'll lead with the final step in the solution to conflict when we walk about reconciliation, when our heart is all about reconciliation, there's the key motivator. When your heart is about people coming together, growing in Christ, and that's all that matters to you, then a lot of these other issues get resolved because you'll approach it in a heart of wanting to be that, that person's brother, sister in Christ when it's done with. That you love them enough, you want to be around them before it started, you want to be around them after it, start, after it ends. Second Peter 3, 15-16 says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience, patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I can't get away with calling people stupid and ignorant. I guess in the scripture you can. But the end of Peter's, in the end of his life, Peter looks to Paul, not as a rival, but as a dear brother. And he acknowledges Paul's apostleship and the fact that Paul's letters are are in fact holy scripture and what's interesting to me is people who look at confrontation the right way receive it the right way approach it the right way with a heart of reconciliation they have lifelong friends They have lifelong friends I I don't you know I'm not trying to embarrass my parents but there's one thing I've really not figured out how to emulate that I've seen lived out in front of me in my life and And that's some of the people that I I know and aware of from past pastorates that I'm sure mom and dad had to be very rough on. I mean, had to be very direct. You know, I think some of those are the people that were still following after them, staying friends for decades. People want you to hang in there in the rough times. They don't want you to give up just because you had a confrontation. They don't want those type of friends. Not deep down inside. They may not like the confrontation then, but if it's handled the right way, you've got lifelong friends. Confrontation with the truth in a spirit of humility and prayer and love does not divide. It unites. I not long ago did a sermon we talked about humility and I don't want to beat that too much, but I want you to keep thinking about that word through 2017 I believe there's a key in that word in what it means and what God meant for it that we're losing in our culture. And I believe there's an open door for the church to reach people through humility because pride is being exalted at a rapid rate. and Humility is not. And confrontation, approach with humility, you can't do it any better. If you come in with no dog in the fight except for reconciliation, you're going to win every time. They may get mad, you may lose a friend, but in Christ, you've won because you've done it with the right heart. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that um, right now, this been a time, and as far as I'm aware, we, we don't have confrontation going on. We don't have in, anything um, that, that we have to worry about in this matter, but God, we know that right now, while things are clear, that there'll be a time, Lord, because we just know in this fallen world that it comes from time to time that we'd all be prepared to deal with with confrontation lord that'd be done in the right way and and lord especially when it pertains to ministry and to our calling lord and and to reaching others lord we're not afraid to stand for for what is right but do it with a sense of humility with a reconciliation in mind and, and god that we wouldn't uh approach it two-faced lord that we wouldn't try to put ourselves above others lord and and act one way in front of one group and another in front of another. But God, we'd understand that everyone is in process. Anyone who has accepted you as their, you as their Lord and Savior, that we're all in a process of sanctification. And Lord, that we can't pass judgment, Lord, just because someone still struggles when we've, you've been gracious to deliver us. Lord, I just pray that you keep this church strong in unity, in one mind, one heart, Lord. God, guide me and direct me as a shepherd to keep the unity of this body even through confrontation. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for your patience with my uh, stumbling tonight. But uh, God bless you. And uh, keep in mind, I think the ladies' Bible study was last Tuesday, so uh, we should resume men's Bible study at the end of this month. Uh, Brother Blankenship should be picking up again with that. Love you. Have a good night.